Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pens of Politics with Mr. Watson. I am your host, Christian Watson, and it is great to be with you today. Today, I have a very special guest with me, uh, my Mr. Brad Palumbo, someone who is a good friend of mine and who is a very prolific scribe over at the Washington Examiner. Um, The thing I like about Brad's writing is that he always invokes thought. He always makes people think, no matter what side of the spectrum you're on. And he's always, in my opinion, quite fair and objective in his analysis. No matter if the right's doing something wrong or the left's doing something wrong, he's always there to call it out and to simply uh, speak truth to power, so to speak. So, Brad, how are you doing, my friend? Hey, good. And thanks for having me on the show and for that kind introduction. I'm very uh, flattered. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Well, it's not, I'm the truth. So, so let's talk about the elephant in the room. COVID. It's it's obviously racking the minds of the American consciousness. It's causing a lot of people to go crazy. In fact, my state governor, Brian Kemp, just recently, uh, I think a day or so ago, released a stay-at-home order, which will be enforced vis-a-vis the National Guard and local law enforcement. And a lot of people, especially a lot of libertarians in Georgia, are calling, calling this an affront to their natural rights, a sort of uh, sort of transgression against their freedom to move and things of that kind of, things of that sort. I know in D.C., I think, where you're based, the mayor has threatened to lock people up if they defy her, her orders. So uh, just how has COVID been affecting you? How has it affected your writing? And what's going on in the area you're in right now? Well, I'm really lucky, to be honest with you, as a journalist, because journalists are a class that will be not unaffected by this crisis. I'm sure there will be individuals who are hurt by it a great deal. But journalists as a whole are going to be just fine because it's very easy for us to do our jobs remotely. And so our salaries are remain unobstructed. And also, uh, the journalism industry is not going to get hardest hit at all. So a lot of industries like right. restaurants, you're going to see jobs are imploding right now. In journalism, luckily enough, there's actually been a surge in traffic at my outlet and many others during the coronavirus crisis. So I'm in a good, I'm very fortunate in that regard. What I will say is that I am very deeply concerned with the the extent of the restrictions, particularly in time. So I am not as peak libertarian as people who think a stay-at-home order violates their <laughs> natural rights. Uh, I, I, yeah. I think that state governments have a police power that does authorize them to do something like that in the short term, temporary mm-hmm. emergency. What I'm really concerned about is that in a time of crisis, which we are in right now, we will accept or have thrust upon us restrictions on our liberty that will end up lasting a long time, if not becoming permanent. So one thing that has really concerned me is I I am based in DC, but I actually live just over the Virginia border in Arlington, Virginia, the suburbs of Washington, Mm. DC. So I'm actually subject to the dictates of Governor Ralph Northam, the same one of the infamous fame about the old KKK photo. Uh, yeah. But anyway, he issued a stay-at-home order that goes out till June 10th. And I just thought that was unreasonable. June 10th. June 10th. Because, I mean, the models we have and the data we have are concerning and serious, but they keep changing. So it doesn't make any yes. sense to me to put put something that sweeping that far out uh, when we really should be playing it. In my opinion, we should be playing it more by year, a couple weeks at a time. Right. Right. And so I think this is a this is sort of the the conundrum a lot of libertarians highlight and i'm not saying this is right or wrong although i do think that there's some there's there's, there's some sense to this argument even if it does seem a little bit outlandish that um if you set a precedent uh, it could it could in, embolden or sort of enable uh, state or local governments or whatever to pursue action lines or courses of action 
that are not very, uh, not very, I suppose, friendly towards the goal of preserving rights. And so, and you mentioned that that you you concerned that these things could become permanent. So, would you would you agree, at least a sense, that there is a valid concern that even temporarily, if the government does restrict freedom of movement or certain certain other kind of freedoms temporarily, that it could leave a lasting imprint that really does not go away and affects people down the line in other sort of situations. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think the only thing you need to look to uh, for confirmation of that is 9-11 and the Patriot Act. Exactly. So we had an attack and there will probably, I don't like to compare the two, but there will be more deaths from coronavirus than 9-11 by a magnitude of unfortunately quite a large magnitude. But after 9-11, what we saw was a a rush to trade liberty for security in air quotes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we to this day, have a basically surveillance at will system where the federal government can spy on U.S. citizens because of right. laws passed in the wake of 9-11. And it, it was supposed to be temporary, the war on terror and all that. Uh, but it does, that's not how government works. That's not how big government works. Uh, so I totally share the concerns of people who are worried. I, I will say that I think Obviously, the government has to be doing a lot right now. The, you know, even for libertarian-minded people like myself, everyone agrees that public safety and public health, and it, I almost put pandemic response under the umbrella of national defense as something within the realm of proper government action. Of course, we want them to be temporary and as narrow in that action as possible. But I right. don't. I don't agree with the peak libertarian people who think that the government shouldn't be placing any restrictions right now. I think they need to be. But like you said, I mean, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser has literally said that she has police officers arresting people for playing pickup basketball. So, right. should people be playing basketball right now? No. But the, should they be getting arrested for that? I mean, that's that's crazy. I, I saw one story, and I, I won't cite any specifics because I forget where I saw it. But I saw one story about a woman who was arrested for violating social distancing guidelines. And oh, her, they put her in jail, a crowded jail cell with a bunch of other women. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's, no, it doesn't. It's, it's literally antithetical to their entire goal, right? Yes. And uh, I, I think that, that that's kind of emblematic of the problems with these kinds of wide-ranging restrictions. Precisely. Precisely. Um, there are a few things I noticed that you mentioned. I don't want to get too bogged down in this. I think that ultimately COVID is not the most important thing that's happening right now. I think, well, it's it's quite it's consequential, but in the grand scheme of things, COVID is going to pass. Right now, we're scared. Right now, we want to just make sure that we're all preserving our lives by being healthy and things like that. But COVID is going to pass. But there are some lasting things happening that I want to get to that 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 are going to outlast COVID. But um, just one quick, quick thing. So you said uh, you mentioned big government, and I've noticed a phenomenon. Uh, happening in this coronavirus response thing, I've noticed that a big, a lot of conservative governors who would typically rail against big government have no problem delegating extra authorities to smaller governments. This is what uh, Ayn Rand, who's one of my intellectual influences, called as bigger, smaller governments. This is her critique against uh, against the um, the governor of Alabama, who was a segregationist, and she said uh, that. The, the fact they want small governments does not necessarily mean they want more liberty. They just want to give more power to smaller entities in greater quantities. And so I see that phenomenon playing out here. And my question to you is, do you see a 
sort of pernicious uh, uh, pernicious result with such a uh, delegation of authority to smaller to smaller entities in the name of preserving liberty when all reality you may be hurting it more since local authorities have more of a immediate impact than federal authorities may have. I think it's something to be worried about for sure. I think it's a very real concern and I do think you will see that playing out in a lot of states. Trust me, I'm no not even at all at odds with the idea that Republicans are not exactly in practice harbingers of small government. <laughs> Uh, That's just the truth. Whether you're talking about George W. Bush, whether you're talking about the Trump administration and trillion dollar deficits, whether you're talking about the growth of government under Bush being even faster than Obama, whether you're talking about, uh, I mean, look at the stimulus bill or not stimulus, but coronavirus relief bill that they just passed. $2 trillion, $2 trillion. Well, and I think it's disastrous, Bill. I think it's, I think some of it I agree with. I do agree with the temporary expansions of unemployment insurance. But I don't support the idea of universal welfare checks for everyone. And I see right. the, my most important thing I don't support is $2 trillion in debt for right. you and I and our children and grandchildren to pay off in the form of <laughs> furloughed interest or future interest payments that are going to crush our national tax rates, uh, decreased economic growth, drags on private investment. They are basically pigging out that we're going to have a $3 trillion minimum deficit this year we are. Because, of, because of this crisis. Um, oh, absolutely. And they're just pigging out on the at the expense of future generations. And yes, interest rates are, are low right now, so it's not the worst possible time to borrow money, but that doesn't change the underlying fact that you are cashing out on future generations to just pay for everyone now. That would be like... A, a parent taking out a credit card in their child's name, going on a, sh- a shopping spree. I, I don't <laughs> care if it's, if it's Christmas time or if there's an emergency, that's still not a responsible thing to do. So right. I, I agree. I completely agree that with maybe a few exceptions, Republicans are not in practice harbingers of small government, even though I'm, I mean, I do think they're certainly on average substantially better than Democrats. Right. And you do see the danger in delegating more authority to smaller entities that could possibly damage people's rights as well, I assume, correct? Yes. But also, I I guess I would say that's better, though, than the alternative. I would rather have, if we're going to give somebody sweeping government power, I would rather have it be a local sheriff who's up for Mm re-election in his town than have Mm -hmm. it be the federal government, just because with, so I I wouldn't like anyone to have that sweeping power. So I agree with your central premise (laughs) But to the extent that we have to have government power, it should be localized because that gives the people more accountability over that power. It's much easier to unseat a state representative than it is to unseat the guy who's in the White House. You have a lot more influence over what your town's mayor does than what the president of the United States does or what the speaker of the house does. So I will say to that extent, I do think it can be in some ways superior to have government power concentrated closer to where the people actually are. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, so let's let's move on because I think COVID again, COVID is going to pass. Uh, but I, again, my prayers and my heart goes out to everyone who's affected. I mean, I myself got furloughed from my job. So it's not, it's not, it's not fun. But I am 100% confident, you know, America has, stro- has strove through some very difficult times. We used to live on the frontier when there was nothing but rolling hills and prairies. And we turned all of that into bustling machines and factories that allowed us to do all kind of I mean, magnificent things which, which, which put the imprint of America all across the world in a very diplomatic sense. So I'm confident if we can strive through all those 
existential sort of conflicts and, and uh, obstacles, we can get through this. I'm I'm very confident that we can. Um, so you read you read an article about a month or so ago, I think, or a month before that, um, about the annual gathering of the Mel Leather Fetish in D.C., which happens every I think every and I think every January or whatever. I don't know. I don't pay attention to those things very often. Uh, but it, it got your article got a lot of heat. It was in the Examiner, and you essentially referred to the people. And please correct me if I'm if I'm not saying this correctly, if I'm misrepresenting your words. You referred to the people who practice that kind of thing in that context as um, degenerates, I believe. And you also argued, I believe, that they were sort of forestalling the the utopian vision for LGBTQ acceptance amongst the mainstream. So, you know, I'm very interested in hearing exactly your reasoning because, personally, I think you got attacked in a very vicious way for this by the by by a lot of folks in the gay left. I think that they should have simply kept their ears, ears open and listened to you because I think that you do make good points. But I'm concerned about the use of the word degenerate as it relates to private sexual practices. So what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, so I think I would agree with your characterization of my article with maybe one or two caveats. But more importantly, it, this is just this article is just one piece of a broader trend that I talk about or a broader argument that I make. And that that trend is that, in my view, the best path towards gay assimilation and acceptance is um, through bourgeoisie norms, right? Through, a, like, for example, the fight for gay marriage. The reason that that I believe, and and I and many of the the pioneers of gay marriage, like Andrew Sullivan, have asked have argued that it won over the hearts and minds of so many Americans, is because the argument was, we just want to be like you. We just want to get married, have families, live our lives, and be like everyone else. To me, that is the right path. What I strongly disagree with is things like Gay Pride Month at the rallies where you go and they're walking around in rainbow thongs in front of children with giant dildo balloons and they have rainbow (laughs) penis lollipops. It's like I think those (laughs) things – and the, you know what? Rightly or wrongly, those things, someone photographs them and they're, they're on the cover of Fox News, the, or the, yeah. the front story on foxnews.com yeah. the next day and on Christian websites, etc. So I think they're playing into the bad stereotypes and I think they're setting us back. And that brings us well, to yeah. the Mal Leather Weekend, which I really just view as uh, one specific example of that broader trend. Let me let me explain a couple things uh, about okay. this about right. this article I wrote and about this stance I took. I stand by the general argument and stance. I think, though, in hindsight, I'm willing to admit when I get something wrong, and I wish I could rewrite the article and not make use of the word degenerate. I don't think that I fully thought through the implications of using that word. What I probably would use is maybe the word debaucherous instead. Oh, um, Lord. So just what I mean is hypersexual, publicly doing something inappropriate. Um, that's what I meant. I think the word degenerate has kind of a nasty connotation to it that isn't what I wanted to convey. And so I regret that. Um, okay. So, yeah. So I have a few questions. Um, I'm curious. Uh, so debaucherous, so this sort of excess sort of excess of sexual energy, so to speak, which is amongst um, the more traditionalistic crowd found upon. 
because that sexual energy is supposed to be contained within the uh, the framework of a of a sort of a loving union, i.e., a marriage or whatever. Uh, but uh, I, I I think there's a, a question because uh, from, from what I understand, the Mao leather gathering happens within the corridors of a hotel enclosed from the public. Now, of course, once you're in that hotel, it's like a, it's like a sort of like a, a jungle of sorts. But uh, when you're but when you're outside of the hotel, all you see is the hotel. And so, if I, I could I could indeed see the point, but this was a little bit excessive. If they were uh, doing the leather stuff with whips and all kind of other BDSM stuff in public, but since they are in a hotel that they ran it out, wouldn't you think that the sort of d- the degree of the severity of the debauchery is lessened significantly since everyone in that building is a is a party to the activities that are happening? So no, I disagree with you. I think that only makes it slightly better, but. If you look at the part of the reason I originally wrote about it was hashtag Mal was trending on Twitter, right? right? right. Or it, it was tr- like not trending, but it had a lot of posts on Twitter. And so right. every scene, every they were taking photos, they were posting videos. This was being live streamed. This was a private right. event in a sense, but it was being broadcasted publicly, shout right. shouted out proudly. And the only reason I commented on it uh, is Christian is because of the way they tied it to LGBT. If they had just had a leather weekend, I would have just said that's bizarre and ignored it. What truly (laughs) bothered me was the way they were branding it as LGBT leather, queer people of color leather. They were tying these things together when I'm actively trying to tie those things apart. Being gay right, doesn't mean you. you have to be an ex- exhibitionist. It doesn't mean you have right. to be a sec- hypersexual. And so that's right. what I found so frustrating about the whole affair. And I also I, – I, so I, I sort of take your point that it's private, but I kind of think that's nullified by the extent to which they publicize this stuff. I mean all the LGBT media outlets like Queer Tea and The Advocate all had articles about Mal, Leather Weekend – and and right. so the extent to which this – and also I want to clarify one point because I think the more sophomoric rebuttal that was made to me was, wow, some libertarian Brad is, ho, ho, ho. I never called. <laughs> seriously. Seriously though. Right. Uh, wow. I mean, there was an op-ed in the Washington Blade that was a response piece and I knew it was sophomoric from the first paragraph because – there's nothing inconsistent about the stance I that. that I took in regards to identifying as libertarian leaning right. conservative. It's not. It's I'm not, not calling for any form of government action. I'm not right. saying that there should be regulations barring them. I'm not calling for them to be censored, punished in any way. I'm merely voicing my personal opinion. And to Absolutely. be a libertarian, you do not have to be libertine. I believe that drug possession should be decriminalized. I don't believe that for a mom to snort cocaine is a good thing. And I'm allowed to say that it's not a good thing. Right. That doesn't right. make me not a libertarian. Same right, thing no. with, with leather whips and promiscuity. I can say that I think those things are bad, but because I'm not attempting to use the state to force my beliefs on you, that's not an unlibertarian position to take. Right. Right. I think anyone with a basic, uh, a basic grounding in political philosophy would understand that libertarianism is simply a philosophy about the actions or the negative actions, so to speak, negativism with the with the uh, withholding the absence of action from the state. Now, there are plenty of libertarians. Right? There's an entire school of libertarian thought that was 
spearheaded by Rothbard and, and, and Rockwell uh, called the paleo, paleo libertarians that are very conservative in their traditional um, their social lives, but do not want the government to enforce that necessarily. And I'm so definitely I, so yeah. more sympathetic to that strain of libertarianism right. than I am to the Absolutely. libertine, almost socially progressive libertarianism. Right, right. No, I understand. I understand. And look, I, I get your point. I do. I, I, I understand why you would be concerned that they're trying to sort of ravel all these activities into a nexus of of, of, of LGBTQ-ness, what it means to be queer or gay means to be doing all these kind of things. I get that. That, that. That sort of pernicious nexus is not a good thing. And as a individualist myself, I think that such attempts to draw, um, un, uh, you know, unbroken, you know, such durable tethers to the gay identity in those activities is a bad thing. Because again, it does create certain expectations of young gay men and gay men in general. And they have to be a certain kind of way or have certain kind of activities to be a to be validated as a gay as a gay person, for example, hooking up is quite popular amongst a lot of. I think I think I would, I would dare I would dare say it's probably more popular amongst young gay men than it is among young, young straight men, or at least it's more promoted than it is because in a lot oh, of yeah. communities, I mean, young I don't know if it's more popular. <laughs> it's more encouraged and it's more promoted. It's promote, promoted. Yes, yeah, promoted. Yeah, and those are those are concerning things when being gay becomes being about that. Um, but I do think that those who are not political agitators, who simply want to practice whatever. Um, sexual pre and interest they have uh, amongst other people. I think those people shouldn't catch the catch the ire of a of of, of, of a just a just uh, a right um, identity politics critique because really they're just living their lives peacefully and consensually. And so, I mean, there are all kind of and I, and you know this of course. There are all kind of this is a, the gay the gay community if you want to call it that is a very diverse group of people and. I and only the the vocal ones are the ones who are trying to push a particular philosophical and political agenda onto people. But I think a majority of them just want to be left alone to do what they want to do. Yes, that's, I, that's my. I don't disagree yeah. with you, but the ones who are in political power, the ones who who populate the halls of journalism and of the activist organizations in Washington D.C. and the ones who work in Democratic political offices, yeah, right. that is the twenty percent of the gay community that wants to force their worldview on others and use the power of government and punish gay people who think differently and punish religious conservatives who don't bow to their beliefs. Those are the people, I agree with you, that's not the majority of gay people. The problem comes in that those are the people who are the most active, who are the most involved, Mm -hmm. who are uh, in these positions of power. And so it's almost kind of like when I was a student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, a total left-wing Antifa-style campus that was like the political environment. Well, actually, most of the students were not crazy radicals. It was about 10% of the student body that was like Antifa-level radical, and they were super hyperactive on campus. And then most people were just kind of lean left but just didn't care and wanted to stay out of it and keep their heads down. And, but right. the, the reality that that causes is that the activists just get to run everything and get in charge. And so even when the whole community is not radicalized, if they're allowing the radical segment to take charge and lead in positions of power, then it has the de facto impact of that being a threat represented by the whole movement. Right. I do think a, a good way to decompose this threat and dissolve it and cancel its power over us in our political lives would be to, I think, begin to chip away uh, at the notion of a gay community. Because when we begin, again, there's about this nexus of connectivity 
between our gayness and between other other gay guys just because we're gay. I think that nexus allows a lot of pernicious activity to happen. That nexus allows the grievance industry to push myths and a mythology about gay victimhood and oppression in the 21st century. That nexus allows a lot of people to try to pass um, things like hate crime laws under the, uh, and under the assumption that they will actually work in our reality. They really don't do very much compared to the laws that already exist. That nexus allows a lot of political pandering, a lot of political marketeering to happen. I think that if we saw, this is a radical proposition, if every gay person saw themselves as an individual, not a part of a community, but a part of the whole of himself or herself, we would we would see a breakdown in the sort of pernicious identity marketeering that has been that you've been fighting against that I've been fighting against uh, in the political realm right now. Don't you agree? Yeah, I somewhat agree. I tend to think though that the there is some validity to the idea that gay people have something in common. I when I have gay friends, there's something there is something we have in common and can talk about and relate to each other that maybe straight people can't. So there's something to be said for a gay community. What there is not anything to be said for, in my opinion, is a gay political community uh, because gay people Mm -hmm. should be individuals and have their own thoughts and beliefs. So the idea of a political gay community to me is objectionable. And then the other thing that's objectionable to me is the kind of loose association between gay and the other things in the LGBTQIA2 plus umbrella. So one thing like I take issue with is setting aside what your beliefs are on transgender issues. I believe Mm -hmm. that transgender and gay are two separate different things with not a whole lot of relevance to each other. I don't really have very much in common with a transgender person. And in fact, you know, kind of the concepts of our identities are somewhat in conflict I don't, so I don't think that LGBT, I don't have very much in common with lesbian women, frankly. I mean, I support their, their rights, same as mine, but it's like there's not the same shared understanding there. And then once you get beyond the T, it becomes even more tenuous. What do I have in common with a, a, a non binary identifying person? What do I have in common with a asexual person? Like these are really loose associations that, that's where I think the biggest problem is. I, 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 if we're going to have groups at all, they should be groups separated into the lowest common denominators, and they should be narrowly defined. So if there's a gay community, that's that's more, far less objectionable to me than the idea of an LGBTQIA2 plus community. Right, right. Well, I understand. I do understand your point, and 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 I think that there is merit to it, absolutely. Um, but I do think that. If uh, if sexuality is the main marker of, of of something one has in common with people, then I would suggest that there are better markers to have. There are better metrics to have, so to speak. Um, so uh, all lesbian women, of course, are not the same. And some lesbian women, there are some conservative lesbian women that I may have something in common with. Some libertarian lesbian women, I have something in common with. I never, I never. Purse is just me personally. I'm not saying you do, but I never pers- I never use sexuality as a sort of marker as to the commonalities I have with someone. I always use sort of spiritual or moral interests or values that things that transcend the flesh so to speak things that transcend you know the the, the desire to you know to, to to fulfill the body's processing things like that as markers of things i have in common now that's just me personally i'm not saying there's a right way to do it or a wrong way to do it i just think that there's more than the sort of commonality of attraction 
that one should have in common with people they seek to have in their circle. That's just my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I would push back a little bit in that, that I think one thing that I did, at least when I was younger, and mm-hmm. a lot of conservatives do, is they're right to reject identity politics, but they take almost the opposite extreme, which is pretending identity doesn't exist and doesn't matter. And I know you don't do that, but I'm speaking more broadly. Right. So the thing that gay people have in common is not just an attraction, right? Because that would only be the truth in a society that was totally neutral to gay people. And then I would agree with you 100%. There's nothing in common. What they really do have in common, though, oftentimes, is shared experiences of family struggles, of stigma, of coming out, of realizing they were gay. So there is, and also there's a sense of like, for me, with some of my gay friends, it's like, uh, certain musicians that are gay that we both like in books and movies. And so there is, I I do believe, some merit to that connection through, through that that is not encapsulated simply in things beyond sexuality. So the, to me, I think you can have something of both. I don't think it has to be one extreme of the other. I certainly don't think anybody should be voting based on their body parts or bedroom pro- proclivities. But that that that's different from saying you can't have any sense of commonality with people who have a similar path in life uh, for one reason or another that's beyond their control. Right. No, I understand your point. Absolutely. Um, so we're winding down here. I, I, so I'm curious about something. I'm sure a lot of folks are curious as well. To the extent that you can reveal, how have how have how what's the next step in Brad Palumbo's path, so to speak? What do you think the next step is? Are are you confident? Are you are you excited? Like what's what's next in your career to the extent that you can reveal? So I don't know what my next job will be when my one year fellowship at the Washington Examiner ends in June. One thing I could reveal is that I'm currently working on a book proposal to to write a book. And the title of my book, Tentative, is Coming Out as a Contradiction, a Gay Conservative Journalist's Reflections on His Politically Homeless Life, the Wild Excesses of the Left-Wing LGBT Movement, and the Failings of the Modern Right. That is a mouthful. It is. <laughs> that's a... I'll need well, to show that. Sounds... But I'm trying to get <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. That, man, that, that, sounds, that sounds like an awesome idea, actually. I like that. I like that. Um, so if I'm lucky, the next pat step for me will be getting a book contract. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, Brad, you you inspire me every day with your writing, and uh, I appreciate I appreciate the fact that you are a a powerful force in political discourse. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you so much, guys. See you later.